You may think that your ability to pay attention is fixed. You just can't get any better at it. In this episode, we explore some of the new science of mindfulness to show you how to practice developing your attention just like a muscle. I'm Sharif Yunus with Dr. Kevin Majors. This is The Golden Hour. Welcome to another episode of The Golden Hour. I'm Sharif Yunus here with Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, welcome. How are you doing? Good, Sharif. Great to be here. Thanks for joining. Well, we had a great session last week talking a lot about mindfulness and theta locking. We talked about that briefly, and we wanted to kind of just follow up on that session to expand the discussion, fill it out a little bit, and maybe maybe do an exercise. Who knows? So, Kevin, let's. I think one of the topics that came up kind of briefly is one that you're also very excited about, and it's theta locking. So this is maybe a neuroscience-specific angle of looking at mindfulness. Maybe just to start, could you kind of expand on the, the, this idea of what is theta locking? Yeah, Shreve. This is. I think there's there's interesting stuff coming out in just a couple of weeks ago. Um, a research group had reported having confirmed this finding of what it means to essentially stabilize your attention by establishing a kind of resonance or a synchronization uh, of your brain so that the areas of your brain start pulsing at the same frequency. And so what we're talking about with brain waves is interesting because one, it's showing us something real that's happening inside the brain that relates to what you're doing with your attention or with your thinking. So brainwaves give us an, uh, an interesting glimpse in to, to actually what's happening in, inside of us. And maybe we'll eventually be able to learn more and more from that. Like the last 50 years, we've been trying to study these. But really, it's just in the last, I think, 15 or so, we've come up with better ways of determining like what's, what's happening inside of our brains. For instance, when you close your eyes, you know, what happens? If you try meditating, how do you relate the different experiences that you have while meditating? Uh, so sometimes you're super distracted, your thoughts are going everywhere. Well, that looks very different than if you get into a state of sustained silence. So there's interesting things that really correlate with experience that science can show us a little more of what's happening. And so what we're talking about is what does sustained, intense attention look like in the brain? And what that looks like is a, 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 the emergence of an expanding zone of theta synchronization, that you produce these theta waves. So they, you know, it's your brain beating at about five times a second. And so, and that that starts in one area and then spreads. And it's, as that spreads, the person locks in to some object of their attention. Now, what I find super fascinating about this is that in optimal work, we've often been talking about how mindfulness, like the practice of mindfulness as its own activity, really is essentially the same thing as intensity in work. And so what you're practicing in a moment of mindfulness or a period of mindfulness is really the same thing 
as when you're intensely engaged in work. Well, that's actually what this research is showing, that when you're practicing mindfulness and you reach that state of silent, sustained attention, that is actually exactly like what happens in work when you reach a deep phase of like a, a deep you know, mode, you could say, of working, so that now your attention is really locked into the task at hand. So we just have now research proof, and it's called, that's why it's theta phase locking, or I call it theta locking for short. It means that you've gone, you know, into a state of very stable, sustained attention. And the other thing that's interesting, people with attention deficit disorder, uh, they have um, very much decreased ability or evidence of theta locking happening when they try to focus. Uh, and so as they get over it, actually, their ability to theta lock improves. Uh, and the treatments for attention deficit all work. It probably seems to increase their ability to kind of theta lock, which is to lock your attention on some object and then it stays there. Uh, distractions are the deficit of theta locking. It means that your attention isn't really captured or put or wrapped in the task. Uh, and so we know that mindfulness is one of the best forms of practice for people with attention problems uh, and, and the best non-medication, I think, uh, you know, treatment. I think everything we do in optimal work actually is a treatment for ADHD. Um, and uh, the, but it's just interesting that this is like the thing it looks like that actually is improving. So that's data locking in, in a nutshell. So then what is, um, so what's the benefit of kind of thinking of it in these terms is, do you see this as more of, it provides support for this aspect of the model that you mentioned where uh, work is sequentially unitasking and intensely focusing on one thing at a time has some of the same uh, things going on in your brain as mindfulness. So the science is supporting that. Does it give us any extra kind of actionable insight? Like, can I, can you learn to theta lock on command? Is that like, what, I guess that's just what you're doing when you do mindfulness. So what, what additional kind of practical insight does it give? If, if any, or maybe it's, that's not the primary. I think, I think thing. no, it's a great question. And it's a challenging question. Uh, because like being like, you know, I'm a physician and very interested in the science. And so when, when you see science, a whole field, you know, like understanding how these waves work in the brain, um, moving in a direction and confirming things, it's, I, I, it's really exciting. I think practically what it means is like, what is happening when you close your eyes? Are you still staying in a state where you're very distracted and your thoughts are going everywhere? Or how, like, can you actually settle your mind? I think that knowing about theta locking then gives us better ways of showing what works more directly to make that happen and to improve it. And fortunately with that, we also know. Um, so Richard Davidson, a fantastic researcher in mindfulness and neuroscience, you know, has, has done work on this uh, with Antoine Lutz and some others that are, they've studied how do you actually then practice theta locking to, to make it more intense. 
And the, uh, we mentioned this last time, but it's good to go over it again, that there are essentially three elements that you practice. And the more people practice these three actions, the, the better their brain gets at theta locking. So the first thing is the ability to detect when your mind is wandering. The second is the ability to let go of whatever it wandered to. And then the third is to refocus and lock on again to the chosen object of attention. So those are the three things, detecting the wandering, letting go of where it wandered to, and then re-engaging the thing you're trying to pay attention to. So uh, this actually is a great place to, to describe the, the way I teach this to people. Uh, the, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was teaching this for the first time for uh, the residents at Harvard that I, that I teach. Uh, and I think that they found it um, to be an interesting approach to teaching mindfulness because when you're teaching people how to do this, it can't fail. There's no way to really do it wrong. Okay, so let me, should we go into it? Okay, so I'll follow along. Okay, good. So um, what I'd like you to do is, uh, well, first close your eyes. Okay, okay now I just have to mention, uh, in, in the literature, you know, this is, um, the, it's basically decoupling yourself from your environment. So perceptual decoupling, they call it. It really just means close your eyes. Okay, and, I, I and that's because that from now on. Okay, <laughs> perceptual decoupling. Of close yeah. your eyes, perceptually yeah. decouple. Exactly. So uh, that's because when your eyes are open, you're typically in a beta wave state, which is where we generally live and do our work. Um, the more agitated you are, the higher frequency beta you get. The more calm you are, the lower frequency beta you get. Uh, once you close your eyes, then your brain goes into an alpha state, which is a little slower than beta, but not yet theta. Uh, so when theta is a little bit slower than alpha. So when you close your eyes, then you decouple from your environment around you and you become aware then of the inner space. Okay, are your eyes closed? Okay, there are now. Okay, good. So what I want you to do then, Sharif, is to put your hand straight up in the air. And that is a way of measuring where, or labeling, where your thoughts are right now in time. Now, if people are listening to this while driving, don't do this, but if you're in a place where you can, then you can go along. Okay, so what we're gonna do is simply label where in time are the thoughts. So if your thoughts are in the present moment, you hold the hand straight up to label that. If your thoughts go into the future, that's palm forward. And if it goes into the past, it's palm backward. Got it. And I would have you just label and watch it for a moment to see what, like where are your thoughts right now? And just keep labeling them. And then I would have people do this and you can see where the thoughts are. And as soon as the thoughts go into the forward, into the future, into the past, then clear your mind again and wait for the next thought to enter. And as soon as it enters, you label it and then you clear it again. If you have any thoughts about the practice itself, like am I doing it right? 
that's just a present moment thought. So then it just stays, your hand would stay straight, straight up. Now as you're doing this. My arm's getting tired, yeah, that's the main thing. Oh uh, yeah, I know that's the side effect. Sorry. So as you're, as you're doing this, you're practicing, one, detecting your mind wandering. That's what triggers the label. So every time your mind goes somewhere, you get a new thought going in or out of your mind. That's a chance to practice labeling. That's the first step. An open awareness of where your attention is. This is also called meta-awareness. It's a component of all deliberate action and virtue. It's the ability to know where your mind is going, what you're doing. It's like looking at a maze from above to see the way through. This is why we do this with tasks before you start. You're practicing this higher level awareness of the whole. But you're doing this for your own mind right now, just by noticing when a thought enters your mind so that you can label it past, present, future. And then bringing your, letting go and bring your mind to, you know, clearing your mind, bringing it back to the present, that's practicing the disattending step, just letting go, which is the second skill. The third thing then I have people do is anchor your attention in the present moment. Find a way of holding your attention in the present moment while still labeling whatever comes in and letting go and putting it back to zero. And as you do that, now we can actually do the whole exercise here because it involves minutes and minutes of silence. But uh, I always ask people like afterwards, how did you try anchoring your attention in the present moment? And it feels like 90% of the time they say, I was just trying to listen intensely to the sounds around me. Uh, turns out that's not as powerful as then what I suggest. Use the sensation of the breath to anchor your attention in the present moment. And when they do that, I can be watching and you see the flapping of the arm in different directions radically decrease. They just are able to hold their attention more and more in the present moment. That is how you practice theta locking. It's the ability to sustain your attention on one object in the present moment. So the learning how to do that is just, you get three forms of practice, detecting your mind wandering, letting go of where it wandered to, and re-anchoring in the present moment. The more you need to grow in your ability to theta lock, the more practice you get when you set aside time for it. Re Having to like bring your attention back is just the practice you need. So people sometimes when they do mindfulness get frustrated by how distracted they are, right? And, but they don't realize that actually is the practice that they most need at that moment. Detecting the distraction, letting go of the distraction, and refocusing on the breath or the whole body. Mm -hmm. Is that what people mean are referring to when they say like, I tried mindfulness, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah, so people have this thing that somehow if you're like distracted when you're doing mindfulness or really any, any kind of meditation, and they think that distraction is a sign it's not working. No, it's just that is exactly how you're building up your ability to do it. And so also I think with sometimes people are seeking, okay, now if people practice, you know, this kind of, the ability to theta lock, and they can learn to turn it on powerfully, it takes less and less effort to do it. Okay, that produces a more stable trait 
of being calm and at peace, which looks like alpha waves with your eyes open. And so people who are very recollected and meditative have that sense of peace. Okay, well, people sometimes want to practice mindfulness to get to that state immediately. And then when they don't, don't get peace, you know, like they don't get the outcome or satisfaction they wanted, then they say, oh, it's frustrating, it didn't work. No, mindfulness is like a muscle exercise. And the muscle you're building is precisely theta locking. So detecting the mind wandering, letting go, and refocusing, that is how you build the stable like muscle of the, your ability to block your attention on one thing and hold it there. Then, what Davidson's research has shown is that when you go to other tasks that require sustained attention, you go into the theta pattern more easily while doing them. So, and that's what you see in intense work and flow states. Presumably in flow, we know it's with highly focused attention. Uh, it's, for different reasons, hard to actually tell if people are in flow when you're doing these EEGs. Probably because they have, I think, the wrong definition of flow. Uh, they think flow is what happens when you play video games. Uh, but the, just to say then, like, sustained intense attention in work is easier to attain the bigger your ability to theta lock is. And so you find just with 15 minutes of practice, you know, some kind of meditation where you're sustaining attention on one thing and directing your attention back if it wanders. That leads to a higher intensity than when you engage work later in the day, which means actually less effort in work because you're not fighting this wandering and distractions. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's a deep analogy there with the way anxiety works, where with anxiety, you have the trigger of anxiety and the only way in the long run to kind of make it so that that trigger does not cause anxiety is to accept the feeling of the anxiety, which people sometimes don't want to do, so they avoid the trigger, and that increases the anxiety in the long run. And then with distraction, people don't want to be distracted, but really being with, kind of experiencing the distraction and accepting it and working with it is the only way in the long run to reduce distraction. So is there kind of an, ex, like, I think Acceptance. that's exactly right. Yeah, and so for both anxiety and distraction, what you need is acceptance. Acceptance is reframing mindfulness and leaning into the challenge. So with anxiety, it's really the emphasis there is on reframing because the whole thing about anxiety is your system is detecting a threat that's actually an opportunity for growth. So the key, to, there's an element of mindfulness absolutely with anxiety but the real kind of key work happens with reframing. But with distraction, I think that, yes, you do need to reframe and see refocusing, doing these three steps, that is exactly the practice you need. But the real work is on the mindfulness, building up your ability to theta lock. So, and as you build that, and we know that it does build with practice, people get better at it measurably just by intentionally practicing it. So it all happens, what, what do people do when they're practicing when they close their eyes and try to meditate? So do they actually dis stay at the high level, um, high level meaning like uh, the normal beta cogitating state where your thoughts are just still going everywhere, you're totally distracted, just thinking through things, a lot of talking in the head. So all that inner talking is like the, the, the I don't know, I guess it's like the, um, 
the, the, the beta cloud. You know, just stay in that kind of hazy, or they get drowsy, which is an alpha state. So they, they start getting drowsy when they try to. Is the early experiments on meditating and looking at the EEG found that so-called, like when people are thinking when they're meditating, 40% of the time they're actually sleeping. <laughs> but with practice and actually this ability to stabilize the theta, sleep is completely kept out. So the stronger the theta locking ability, the less drowsy people get while trying to practice meditation. I'm sorry, I digressed a bit from your question, but I hope I answered right. it. No, that's, that's great. So, and then I, w I wonder if we could finish up, we have a couple more minutes, uh, by talking about, so, I mean, I, I think once you start to take on the practice of, of mindfulness or meditation, whatever you want to call it, uh, so you're closing your eyes and you're kind of in your own head, uh, what are the kind of different things that people do? I mean, there's kind of focusing on gratitude or these other types of things that then get beyond kind of thoughts. And I don't know, is that getting yeah. into emotions or affections? And what is that doing? Um, is that a helpful practice? Yeah, so what really enables, okay, so when you close your eyes to meditate, it kind of depends, like, what are you really seeking there? So if, if you're aiming to practice something, let's say gratitude, you could keep talking in your head about things you're grateful for, but that actually doesn't go real deep. Uh, and it's staying at the level of chatter in the head, right? So how do you make it go deep? You intend the gratitude and what you're saying more and more deeply. Okay, so as you try to intend the statement of gratitude, it could be love, it could be desire, it could be, you know, uh, feeling apologetic or sorry for something. As you're really more deeply intending it, you'll see that you move away from the beta chatter in your head and you start getting into a deeper sense of affection. Now that affection is felt with a sense of touch. <clears throat> Tuning in to the sense of touch that is theta locking. So what theta locking requires is a sustained object of attention. But words cannot be that. Images cannot be that because they move too much. It would be exhausting to try to hold an exact image in your head for, you know, 15 minutes. But with touch, you can do that. So when people, if people were to practice a gratitude meditation, or loving kindness or simply silent love meditation. It's the continuance of the affection that provides the stable object for theta locking. And as they focus on actually like entering into that, it makes the theta locking happen. So it's both like the cause and the effect of theta locking. You start to feel gratitude. So you can use the words to start the gratitude going, but then as you continue going deeper into the meaning of the words, you end up staying longer and longer in periods of silent gratitude or, or silent love or whatever the, the, whatever the focus is. Now that you get, the better you are at theta locking, the more that affection can remain in silence. And we know that gratitude meditations and loving kindness meditations, you know, there, are, there is a lot of evidence for the power of those to, to kind of treat negative processing bias, to get people over 
the kind of what's happening when people are really chronically anxious or depressed. These things are powerfully shaping for the heart, but to really shape the heart, you need theta locky. So, okay, just uh, so maybe just last question here. It's kind of like, okay, so I was gonna ask as you're describing the neurological process, like, okay, so what's the point of this? And then you just kind of already gave an answer for that, which is uh, that it helps combat the negative processing bias. And I think at, at other times you've mentioned to me that it helps in habit formation. Um, that, now, how does that, how is that consistent with a kind of core element of our approach, which is that behavior is necessary for shaping habits. So that challenge is like the most important step that is then what actually goes back to, in the case of anxiety, reshape the, the amygdala's threat labels. And so that challenge is like all important, but now it's kind of like, okay, just with mindfulness, you can do habit formation. So how are those in some way doing the same thing or, or how do you think about that? I, I don't think that people can authentically practice this kind of affective theta locking, let's call it, without sincerity. I think that sincerity is actually how you move from the meaning of the word down to the feeling of the word, the affection in the word. It's by more sincerely meaning it that you do it, and that can't be faked. So I think that the way you forge these deeper movements of, of the heart um, are inseparable from life as a whole. And if people are sincerely like aiming to challenge themselves according to their ideals, then there's no inner dissonance when they try doing this. But if it's not part of so I don't think this is a technology that people can use like to feel better, apart from the deeper questions of like the sincerity with which they live, the ideals with which they live, their, their kind of sense of consistency and generosity in living those things. So the real shaping takes place both in behaviors that you do outside of these times of meditation and in shaping the heart more immediately in the meditation itself. I think they have to go together to be sincere and genuine. So if there was some difference, so I think the behaviors are absolutely necessary. But when you practice this deeper forms of meditation that move the heart, that's also a kind of behavior. You get, it's the right kind of inner behavior. So you have the inner behavior, the outer behavior. They have to be consistent, though, ultimately, for this for this practice to really bear fruit. Okay, Kevin. Well, I mean, I thought I was going to stump you with that one, but you had a pretty good answer. I'm not going to lie. It's a very tough uh, question today, <laughs> Sharif. Yeah. So, okay, well, I th that's all we have for today. Um, but we will be back next week with a great episode. So thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much for, well, helping me through that exercise. I found it personally yeah. helpful. And then sharing all of these insights is great. Yeah, and I think the you can see that the exercise allows you to ask tougher questions afterwards. So, mm -hmm. good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good. Okay, all right. Well, see thanks ya. so much, Kevin. See you next week. Bye-bye. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to check out OptumWork.com for a set of online tools to help you engage challenge in your life. See you next week.